Hi, and welcome to Brett. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he sets out five vocational gifts for the building up of the church in the kingdom of God. Evangelist, pastor, prophet, teacher, and apostle. It's our conviction that every single one of us is called into one or more of these. They're not personalities, but our personality undoubtedly plays a part. What they are is the call of God on your life. Now Jesus is, of course, the perfect combination of all five. And so it makes sense that having worked out our particular call, we look to and learn from Jesus in order to grow into maturity in our particular one. So for the next five weeks, we'll be looking at how Jesus is an example to us of the perfect evangelist, apostle, teacher, pastor, and prophet. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you like to take a seat? Very nice to see you all. Welcome back for those of you who, for whom this is the first service of um, the new year. It's good to have you with us. Uh, very warm welcome if it's your first time, if you're visiting us. Um, nice to have you with us too. My name's Ed, and along with my wife Hannah, I lead the church. Uh, sign up to Alpha, just to reiterate what Che said, sign up to Alpha. Um, we're already over full, but it'll be more fun with more people. So just come to that. It's on, um, starting on Wednesday, uh, and there's dinner, there's discussion, there's some thoughts from me. What more could you want of a Wednesday evening uh, at the office? Anyway, that's that. Um, we are carrying on a series we started last week uh, on the five-fold uh, ministry that Paul describes in his letter to the Ephesians. Uh, Jesus, he says, has given to the church, uh, in chapter 4, verse 11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, so that the people of God may be built up, so that they may be unified, so that they may be matured and enjoy the fullness of Jesus, which is what we're all called to do. Uh, and it's all, what we're all looking for. And as I said last week, my conviction is that actually God calls each one of us into one or more of these. It is very important for your own sanity, for your own faith, for your own experience of life, um, to understand what sort of shape God has made you and to allow him to call you fully into it so that you might be everything that he created you to be. Now, these callings are not personality, but um, personality often uh, is a good indicator of calling. For instance, if your personality makes you more inclined towards ideas rather than people, it's unlikely that God will call you to be a pastor, because that involves people. More likely, perhaps, to be called uh, to be a teacher or a prophet or something like that. It's our job, and in fact, it's the job of the whole community, really, to identify who we are and to um, release ourselves into our particular shape. So if you aren't sure, and I know this can be crippling for some people, to not really know what sort of shape you are, can I suggest just a couple of things as we start? Um, ask people who know you best what they think. And by the people who know you best, I don't mean the people who think they know you best and would like you to be something in particular like your mother. Or maybe your father. Uh, but actually the people who really know you best, who could also be your mother or your father. Ask them what they think. But also, it's most likely that um, 
a question such as, what do I like doing, or what am I good at, will help you understand who you are and what you might be called to. So anyway, this series, we are looking at Jesus' example, so that we might see in him, because he is this, the perfect pastor, the perfect teacher, the perfect prophet, evangelist, and apostle, so that whoever we are, we can grow up into that particular um, uh, vision of what, it, what we are called to be. So this week, last week we did Jesus the evangelist, this week Jesus the apostle. Now the word comes from the Greek apostolos, which literally means a sent out person. Now in the first century Roman world, the term could mean simply a messenger, but more often than not, it connated um, some sort of greater authority than this. Uh, it's more than someone simply delivering messages. It's like an emissary or a diplomat. Uh, they were sent out to represent and speak for an authority. Even admirals um, of conquering fleets or generals of conquering armies were described as apostolos. So in the New Testament, all of Jesus' 12 disciples are called apostles, but so too are those outside the original number who um, fulfilled a similar sort of apostolic role of Jesus, sent out to speak for him, bring his authority, plant his, uh, plant his churches, and establish his kingdom. Paul being obviously the most um, clear example, but so too uh, Barnabas, and for the women amongst us, Junior, who is a woman and also an apostle. Isn't that good news? Not just reserved for the men. Uh, so, some people draw a distinction between big A apostles, those who saw the risen Christ, i.e. the 12 disciples, and Paul, and therefore, because they uh, saw him in person, they have greater authority, and clearly they do, uh, and then the small A apostles, those who have a similar calling but didn't have the privilege of seeing the risen Jesus, but in truth, the b biblical material is pretty unclear on this, and ultimately, I don't think it's that important. These days in church circles, apostle is used most readily to describe those who plant churches and those who are missionaries. But I think, and we'll come on to this, it's important not to define it too tightly. Ultimately, being an apostle is about bringing heaven to earth, as we shall see, and heaven is a pretty big place. And it encompasses a lot of things. So any way in which we do that, we are being apostolic. Now, of course, as followers of Jesus, we are all in some sense, sent out. All four Gospels include Jesus' commission to his followers to go out and to continue his work in his name. In the same way the Father sent me, says Jesus, so I am sending you. But given that the New Testament makes this clear distinction that some are called to be apostles and some are not, there must be a sense in which the apostolic calling is more than just this sort of general universal thing to all followers of Jesus. Rather, in the same way that we're all called to be witnesses, but only some of us are evangelists, or we're all called to prophesy, but some of us are prophets, the same way we're all called to go out and bring good news to the world, but only some are gifted as an apostle. And I would say an apostle, therefore, is someone who does this all the time. It is their thing. It's what they are called to do above and beyond anything else. So, are you an apostle? Apostles are like the entrepreneurs of the church. Apostles go. They find it very difficult to stay still. 
They tend to have vision and ideas and are excited by the new. Nothing could be more exciting, actually, to an apostle than planting a new church. That would be very good. Let's do that a lot. Nothing could be more boring, as Nelly was talking about, to an apostle than a church without any clear sense of vision or direction or doing anything. The life outside the status quo of the church is the most compelling to them. What could be? That's the sort of question that the apostle asks themselves. They see opportunity, they do not like it when it is missed. They see need and they want to work out how best to meet that. They tend to be people of strong conviction and authority. Because of this, they can be accused of narcissism and arrogance. Just as a test, consider the Apostle Paul. Think about Paul in your mind. What do you think? Do you think that sometimes Paul has quite a high view of himself? Yes, Apostle Paul. Sometimes these accusations are well-founded. More often than not, they are actually a misunderstanding of someone's um, gifting in the light of Jesus and what he is calling them to do. So are you an apostle? This morning, I want to consider Jesus' apostleship what was his mission and how did he do it? And so we are going to hear from uh, Ike as he reads Matthew 17, beginning at verse 1. that on? Yeah, nice. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, what then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they, they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Thank you, Ike. So Jesus is actually only referred to as an apostle once in the New Testament. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, says the writer to the Hebrews, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. But clearly throughout the Gospels, Jesus is depicted as being sent by the Father, carrying the Father's authority to the world. Nowhere more gloriously and emphatically and beautifully than here in what is commonly known as the Transfiguration. Now, this episode that we just had read to us comes in the middle of Jesus' ministry, after he's been preaching and demonstrating the signs of the kingdom for a while, but before public opinion has really sort of turned against him. 
And the six days later that is referred to in verse 1 uh, refers to the preceding uh, chapter in which uh, Peter has finally um, confessed, yes, you are the Christ, uh, the Messiah, the one who is to come. Um, and Jesus responds very well to it. Um, just imagine for a second being Peter. Imagine being with Jesus for a year and a, a bit of his ministry, spending all your time with him, waking up in the morning thinking, I'm going to go and be with Jesus today, see what he does today. Going to bed at night going, I wonder what will happen tomorrow. Seeing the miracles, seeing the teaching, seeing the authority. Seeing Jesus when he's tired and irritable and hasn't eaten for a while, and yet still remaining otherworldly, sinless, perfect in every way, no way you could fault him. And no doubt you've talked about this person with your friends. No doubt you've wondered who he was. Surely you've said he's more than just a rabbi, isn't he? There's something about this man. He's got to be something more. Isn't he the savior of the world? Nevertheless, to actually say it out loud with words to his face, that's quite something else. There is huge power in the spoken word. Has anyone in this room ever said, I love you to someone? In a sort of romantic way, don't answer. In a romantic way. You will know that there is power in saying that. It's why we don't say it on a first date. Don't say it on a first date. <laughs> you do not know. Don't say it on a second date. Give it some time. Just friendly words of advice from me. But yet, there is something, the longer we are with someone, that compels us, that drives us. At some point, we need to say this out loud. It is a risk, and we can't be completely sure, can we? We don't fully know. But when we do, it's almost like it becomes completely real and true, because we've said it out loud. And I think this is probably what's going on for Peter. I think this is, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure I could actually say this now. You are. You're the one the whole world has been waiting for. Who do you say I am, says Jesus in the preceding chapter. Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Nice and succinct, to the point. And Jesus replied, blessed are you. Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven, and I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. I imagine Peter went... <laughs> I picked up... Um, I don't know what that sound was, but I think you get the idea. <laughs> I picked up my daughter Margot from uh, school on Friday, and... Uh, she, she's nine, and she jumped in the car, and quite often she's in a bit, like, not a great mood, but today, but this day, she was in very good mood, and she couldn't wait to tell me why she's in a good mood. And the reason she was in a good mood, she said, do you know what, Daddy? I was used as, as an example in front of my whole class about how to do this particular thing that no one else got right. And she just had, the, she couldn't stop smiling. And she said, and then we got given our exercises back, and everyone else's had red notes on it, red pen notes on it, and mine just said, well done. <laughs> this is just an opportunity for me to boast about my brilliant child. 
imagine Peter beaming. I got it right. And he said, well done. He said, blessed. He knew my dad's name. He called me by it. And then he said, I'm going to build my church on you. Imagine the vindication for him. But nothing compared to the vindication that comes next. Jesus led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Can you imagine Peter going, didn't I tell you guys? Look, his face is like the freaking sun. And Elijah, somehow, and Moses, weird, are here as well. Isn't this extraordinary? We were right. We were right to follow this guy. He is the thing. Imagine it. This is like heaven and earth colliding before our eyes. This is extraordinary. Have you ever been in a worship setting where you just don't want to leave? I'm very sorry if you can't answer yes to that question because it is, it is extraordinary. I remember um, the weekend away on the Saturday night. We went away in October to um, Arrowhead. We'll do the same this year. And on the Saturday night, we were worshiping. Tavia and Ben were leading us, and it was just like, out of nowhere, um, the Spirit of God fell, and it was amazing. We, I think we sang the same refrain about 450 times, over and over again. And if you've been in a setting where the Spirit's not moving, and you're singing the same refrain 450 times, you want to go, please, please, could we stop? But I, think, I think he knows now. I think he's got it. But this was like, I never want to leave because it's amazing. And people were crying and people were um, giving themselves back to Jesus again. It was incredible. Because this is what heaven is like. This is what we're made to do, to worship the living God, to experience it here right now. To experience all the glory of heaven right now. And when we experience it, we do not want to leave because it's what we're made for. It's what we're destined for. And this is the point. Jesus' apostleship, him being the one sent out with the authority of God, and ours by extension, is fundamentally and exclusively to do with bringing heaven to earth right here, right now. That's it. That's the call. No more, no less. No less... So it's not waiting around in some sort of death cult, waiting for us so that we can all die and go to heaven. How depressing. How boring. And no more than that, because it's not about forcibly taking dominion over earthly structures. Forcing. Wouldn't it be great if there was a Christian at the head of Goldman and Sachs? I don't know. Maybe. What if they're really bad at money? Wouldn't it be great if there was a Christian at the head of Disney? I don't know. They might make some terrible, terrible films. It's not about forcing God's dominion on the world. Rather, it's about beckoning in Jesus and allowing him to bring his heaven to every single person who wants it. Right here, right now. It's about declaring Jesus' lordship. It's declaring that the kingdom has come because the king has come. You cannot have the kingdom without the king. 
You can do kind of crappy versions of it, but without Jesus as the king, it will not be the kingdom of God. It will not be heaven on earth. It's about healing the sick, the emotionally, physically, and spiritually unwell. It's about setting those who are under spiritual, institutional, and political oppression free. And it's about proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, as Jesus declares. The year means the age, the eon, the time between God, Jesus arriving on earth and him returning. This is the period we're talking about. And the Lord's favor means God's settled attitude of grace towards everyone. That he is saying, you are my people and I want you. That's the Lord's favor. That everyone is included and everyone can be part of heaven here and now and forever in the future. That is the call of God. And it's only possible because Jesus is here now. It wasn't before him. So Moses' call was to bring God's people out of slavery. I've seen the misery of my people, declares the Lord. I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them, and I am sending you, Moses, to do it. And in God's power, Moses sets his people free, but the tastes of heaven that they experience there don't last. They wander and they grumble in the desert. Then they go after other gods, they are compromised, they are exiled, their land is occupied. They fear that God may actually have left them forever. Rabbinic teaching held that before the Messiah came, Elijah had to return because his role as God's sent one had not yet fully been fulfilled. Elijah would return, says the prophet Malachi, to turn the hearts of fathers towards their children and children towards their fathers. In short, to make everything right with the world, to prepare the world for the coming Messiah. But it's now only through Jesus, who is both fully divine and fully human, that heaven can emphatically invade earth. Elijah has returned in the person of John the Baptist, as Jesus says, and he has prepared everything, but people have rejected him. But now Jesus, the one who God has called and has sent out, has come to complete it all. Being perfectly God and perfectly human, He is the only one, the unique one, who can bring and represent both humanity and God on the cross. As he says, I've come to suffer so that you might be set free. He brings the two, once and for all, eternally together. So, the call of the apostle is the call of Jesus. It is to bring heaven to earth. And secondly, the call is always for the benefit of other people. Notice who is the object of this whole episode. Jesus is clearly the subject, but the focus is as much, if not more, actually, on the disciples. It says, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. Just then, there appeared before them, Moses and Elijah, while Jesus was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified, but Jesus came and touched them. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus, and they were coming down the mountain. Jesus instructed them. 
whilst the transfiguration may be in part for Jesus' benefit, ultimately, and that's a point that we're going to come back to, but ultimately it is for the benefit of these disciples. And this is the point. The call of God on you is always for the benefit of other people. And this should give those of us with predilections towards self-relatedness, arrogance, narcissism, and all those sorts of things, pause for thought. It's for other people. So, can I ask you something difficult, as I ask myself? Are you pursuing your call for yourself? This city would say, well done, go for it, you deserve it. Just prior to this, Jesus has said this to his disciples. Verse 24. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Now, there is a strain of Christian thought that says to be a good Christian, you really have to lose all your individuality, you have to lose all your sense of self-worth, and spend your days self-flagellating for the sake of others and God. Woe is me, I am a terrible person, I need to be reminded daily of my terribleness before God so that I am good in his eyes. Is this what Jesus is saying? I don't think so. Now, undoubtedly, there is a cost to discipleship. The Christian life was never said to be easy. But does denying ourselves really mean signing up for a life of miserable struggle? When you think of Jesus, do you think miserable struggle? When you think of Paul, do you think miserable struggle? I don't think so. And there is, after all, this quid pro quo in play on both sides here. Jesus is actually saying, those who look after number one, those who do it for themselves, what actually happens, despite all other uh, evidence to the contrary, is that they lose it. They lose their soul. They lose their life. They are the miserable ones. They will be miserable. They will forfeit their soul. And rather, it's those who give their lives over to Jesus who find it. Even more explicitly, Jesus will reward those according to what they have done, i.e. to the degree to which they have placed their lives in his hands for the service of other people. I've been um, running the AF course for about 15 years in different contexts, both here in, um, and in the UK, where, which is where I'm from. And um, the number one sticking point for anyone, irrespective of their cultural background, their age, the size of their bank account, their gender, the number one sticking point is this, to actually fully giving themselves over to the Jesus thing. Jesus is going to ruin my life. That is what everyone thinks. He is going to ruin my fashion. He is going to ruin my music taste. He is going to ruin everything about my life. And for some reason, I'll have to believe that it's for my good. 
The main thing is Jesus is going to send me to some godforsaken corner of the world where I will have to be a missionary and live in some horrible hovel and become a nun and I am a man. How will that work? <laughs> this, I am just telling you, is everyone's fear. It's your fear, it's their fear, it's my fear. I really did not want to um, train to be a church leader. Um, I didn't want to really go to church, to be honest. And then I found myself going to church and finding myself convinced, and I was completely won over by it. I thought it was amazing. But as I said the first time I walked through the doors of a church, God, I don't even know if I believe in you, but I am not getting involved. I will come along, but I am not getting involved. And then I felt like God calling me to ordination. It was very annoying. All my friends weren't Christians. They thought I was going through a stage. The stage went on so long that they thought maybe he's completely lost it. And then they realized, actually, I was quite serious about it. And then I said, oh, by the way, I'm going to become a vicar. Just so you know, in England, only odd weirdos are vicars. I know there's like hipster pastors here. They don't exist in the UK, just weirdos. I never wanted to do it. And it was, a, it was a battle. But do you know what? Over time, over just getting over myself and actually trusting, one, that God is good, that he knows me better than, he, than I know myself, that he knows what I'm like. I love it. I really love my job. I love it. Not all the time, but most of the time. I just think, this is great. I get to do this. I even love you. I know. I love you guys. I do it for you. I actually don't think I could be happier doing anything else. Jesus says, trust me, give your life to me, and then you will find it. Left to my own devices, I would never be doing this. So are you an apostle? And what is God calling you to do? At some point, we as a community will plant churches. We will start to plant churches. I'd quite like to plant a West Side church. Does anyone like the West Side? Three people. <laughs> um, church plants will need people. Need people going, yes, I would like to give myself to making this work. Is that you? Or is God calling you into something right here, right now? The two don't have to be mutually exclusive. It may be as simple as going out from here and going, I know God is calling me to invite someone to Alpha. I know God is calling me to volunteer for the kids' church and bring heaven to earth for these children who Jesus loves. He loves children much more than he loves you. He loves children. That's who he really goes for. Is he calling you to do that? It may be as simple as signing up to the Service City team to start new initiatives, serving those who are far more disadvantaged than you in this area. Is that what excites you? Is that what drives you? Is God calling you into that? Or it may be something more complicated. Hannah and I have been talking for a while about um, setting up a bakery. We haven't talked about this for a bit, but we have been talking to, to about it for a while. So setting up some sort of bakery, because bread, you know. Um, it's as simple as that. Uh, For-profit business. 
to help those trying to transition out of homelessness have um, viable employment to learn a skill and to, I say this as a European, American bread is terrible. It's disgusting. Go into a supermarket, bread, disgusting. You have to spend about $15 before you can eat anything that is in any way edible. We could make nice bread for people. Hannah and I haven't got any time to do this, any space in our lives to do this. Maybe you could, or maybe you have a much better idea than that. <laughs> What's God calling you to? Build the kingdom. Commit it to the Lord. Are you called to write good worship songs? Tavia's written two excellent songs, one of which we just sang. Um, and it makes such a difference. Is that what you're called to do? Called to write songs of worship that are actually about Jesus and not about us, and actually have no interest really in making any money or fame. Wouldn't that be wonderful that we could just sing and worship together? Hannah sent me a flyer of a um, Christian sort of conglomerate of musicians who um, are probably quite well known. And they've written some great songs. We, um, we sing a few of them songs. But on this flyer, they were coming to Los Angeles, I think, to do this thing. And at the bottom, it said something like, what was it? Witness, wonder, Witness wonder something and wealth. Wealth, goodness sake. Honestly. It was so horribly predictable. Finally, how does Jesus do it? Because of um, centuries of Christian teaching, that have sort of accentuated Jesus' divinity so that he sort of floats um, a foot above the, the earth and um, is kind of otherworldly. Uh, we have been guilty of um, missing his humanity. But Jesus, just like any of us, was fully human. And in his humanity, we know that there were times when he sat uncomfortably with the call of God on his life. In the Garden of Gethsemane, famously, he asks God the Father, could we just change the plan? Could we do something different here? And so he needed assurances of his call. And if he needed them, we do too. Firstly, we need to hear the words of assurance from our Father in heaven. I said earlier that the main beneficiaries of uh, the episode here are the disciples, but they are, of course, not the only ones. Jesus also hears the words, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased, listen to him. Precisely the same words that Jesus hears at his baptism at the beginning of his ministry, which suggests that we need to hear God's assurance, God's words of assurance to us more than once. If Jesus needs them two times, I think we probably need them 200 times. Um, when I was considering ordination, Hannah and I were newly married. No, we weren't. We were newly engaged, and it was Easter Sunday. And being the good Christians that we were, we thought about going to church and then didn't. And instead, we um, went to Hannah's apartment and we had lunch together. And we, it was just the two of us sitting around the table having lunch. And we were considering our future. And we, being the good Christians that we were, decided to pray together. 
it was a very strange experience for me, and I think even more so for Hannah, because Hannah started praying for me and started prophesying. And what she was prophesying, I don't think she thought had anything to do with leading a church. If I didn't want to lead a church, Hannah did not want to be married to someone who led a church even more. But when she was praying for me, she was saying these things, and I felt like God saying so clearly to me, I have called you to lead a church. Just get over yourself and go to ordination. And the Spirit landed on me so powerfully, I fell off my chair. It was just the two of us. Lunch, me, on the floor. Hannah going, what on earth is happening? I go back to that over and over and over again because I know and I can't deny that was God's call. I can't deny that he was assuring me of his presence with me. And this is what he wanted to say. He speaks because he knows we doubt. We just need to recognize his voice. Secondly, Jesus heard the words of assurance from his friends. If it was a pressure valve for Peter being able to finally confess that Jesus is who he says he is, imagine Jesus going, finally someone's got it. Finally someone is actually acknowledging who I am. I am not wasting my time. God will use you to assure other people of their calling. We need to do it together. Don't compete. Don't worry about, well, what if no one tells me anything? Just go around telling people what you see. Actually, this is one of the main things we do in prayer ministry. We are listening to God for what God is saying about a person, who they are and what they're called to do. It's the part of this that I like the most, identifying people's gifts and allowing Jesus to, um, to release them into them. I was praying earlier and I felt like God say, there is someone here who is a man, sorry for the women, but this person is a man, they can't help it. Uh, They just are. And um, this person um, is a builder and um, they build houses. And God is saying to you, um, I want to um, come alongside you and just bring this whole business to life for my sake. There's a sense in which this is building houses in a way that hasn't been built before, um, that uh, particularly serve those who wouldn't normally be able to afford houses. I don't know much more than this, but I think that person said... You've been praying about this a lot. You've been thinking, is this, is this what I'm supposed to do with my life? I don't know how this works. I don't know whether I'm not being a very good Christian. And Jesus is just saying, no, this is exactly what I've called you to do. You, you are not a lesser person. There is no hierarchy in the kingdom of God. You're not more important if you're a pastor. You're just who you are. And there is room for everyone. This is the point why we don't need to compete or compare ourselves. There's room for everyone.
to let people speak into your life and tell you who you are because God will speak through them. I'm going to uh, London next week for a memorial service of uh, a sort of mentoring um, older pastor, um, a little uh, New Zealand guy uh, who died last year. And um, when I first became a Christian, I was at the front of church, and he was very economical with his words. Uh, but he came up to me once, and I, be- I didn't know anything, but he said, um, God is calling you to be an evangelist. I didn't even really know what that word meant. Um, but it stuck with me, and I just thought, I know that's true. I just know it's true. And then he just sort of wandered off on his way. And before um, the falling off the chair incident, I'd been thinking and praying that I might start a business. I was going to open a kind of tea store shop thing. We had a lease on a building. It was all about to go. And we went to see him and his wife just to ask him what he thought. And he remained uncharacteristically silent throughout. And then the next day, he just walked up to me and said, you don't want to open a tea shop. And then he walked off. And the thing was, it's totally true. I didn't really. Let us be open to hearing what God is saying to one another because you have no idea how impactful, how powerful, how much that could change someone's life for the good. Finally, he has the reassurance and the assurance of the power of the Spirit. Of all the miracles of Jesus, this is the only one that happens to him. Again, it's not just for the benefit of those watching. When Jesus sends out his disciples, during and at the end of the Gospels, and particularly in Acts, he says, wait, wait in Jerusalem, and then my spirit will be poured out onto you, and he will give you power, power from on high, to reach all the ends of the earth with the power of heaven. It's why we emphasize the power of the spirit. The spirit can do things that no one else can. We can do stuff in our own mind, but if we don't have the Spirit flowing through us, if we are not operating in the power of the Spirit, we will always be somewhat inefficient. You must be a person of the Spirit. It's what it means to be a Christian, is to be a Christ-centered, Spirit-filled person. I understand that there's lots of ways in which the church has taught about the things of the Spirit in sort of sub-theological, terrible ways. I know that there's been lots of practice that has been close to abuse, Uh, sort of malpractice when it's come to how we can experience the Spirit. I understand all of that reasons. Would you do your best to try and park that? Open yourself to the Spirit because this is life and death. This is the most important thing that you can do is to understand how the Spirit meets you and what He can do in your life. Good. I have seen people who really shouldn't be doing anything for God's kingdom because their lives are such a mess because they're not really good at anything, but then being filled with the Spirit and being used in great power. I'm thinking of one person in particular who um, was just this oddball um, who was at St. Mary's, uh, the church that we came from. Um, But for whatever, you know, terrible relationship with parents. He was a real people pleaser. He was just sort of this guy who would hang around and just go, go away. Uh, He's always sort of there. I, I, I love him. Uh, but God would, um, God would use him so powerfully in prophecy because he was open to being used, used for it. When we were waiting for our visa, he came up to us, and we had a long, long wait for our visa. He came up to me and said, um, 
uh, just so you know, uh, God's saying it's going to be um, uh, August. And this was January. And I was like, shut up. <laughs> I reject that in the name of Jesus. <laughs> he was entirely right. If I had been a mature Christian at the point, I would have gone, thank you. But he was used powerfully because he was open to the power of the Spirit, and he still is. Um, one, one final thing. So when we arrived here, we'd had this long delay for the visa, and we finally arrived, and um, we'd sort of run out of money before we'd even started. And we were sitting in this um, house with our three kids having moved from the UK, about to plant a church, knowing precisely six people in this whole city. And we were sitting there in our living room. Um, it was me, Hannah, and these two volunteers who'd sort of come out um, on a wing and a prayer with us uh, to um, plant this church. And I have to admit, I was going, what have we done? What on earth have we done? This is so irresponsible. Um, this has been a nightmare. We should have just stayed in England, just so you know. And we were praying, uh, and then um, the Spirit fell on me. In su- it was very embarrassing. fell on me in such power that my hands sort of crippled up, and I was breathing and, and woofing, and I don't know what that is, uh, but I was just going, whoa, whoa, like this, all of this power, whilst these three people go, what's going on here, praying for me, and I go, It was um, one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had. Um, And during it, what God was saying to me is, uh, no, I brought you here. I have called you. And my power is made perfect in all your weakness, in all your worry and your stress. Uh, And I'm going to use you in great power. It's not about me. It's about what God wants to do. It was so reassuring, but I remember opening my eyes going, this is amazing. And Hannah, these two girls, were looking at me going, and I was like, what are you doing? There's so much power. There's so much power. Come on. I started trying to pray for them. And they were like, please, would you just leave us alone? And then for about a year and a half, every staff meeting, one of them would go, there's so much power. There's so much power. God will not be mocked. (laughs) But I can be, yes. I definitely should be. Um, And again, it's one of those things you go back to. We need the reassurance of our Father in heaven. We need the reassurance of other people. And we need the power of the Spirit to fill us, to do the work. Otherwise, we will doubt. Otherwise, we will stop doing it. Otherwise, we will find better things to do. Otherwise, as Nelly was saying, we will get bored. If you are in bored in church, something seriously wrong has happened. Open yourself to the Spirit. Anything but boring. Scary, yep, definitely. Boring, nope. Do you want to be bored in church? The power of the Spirit is the one who enlivens our souls, who enlivens our faith, who helps us to worship, who helps us to understand the things of God, who gives us the tools we need to do the work. So be filled with the Spirit, finally. All of this gives Jesus conviction. Directly after um, Peter's confession, Jesus says, so, you've identified who I am, well done. 
what I'm going to have to do now is going to have to suffer at the hands of God's people, and then I am going to be crucified, and then I'm going to raise from the dead. And Peter, obviously kind of high on his um, endorsement from Jesus, goes, I need to take you aside, Jesus. And he literally, he takes him aside and says to him, rebukes him, in fact, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. When we are assured of our calling, when we know the words and the adoration of our Father in heaven, when we have tried and tested what we're called to do and see that it is true, we can have that determination and that conviction that we will not be misaligned by people or by ourselves going after things that are not of Jesus. We need to have that sure conviction. And it comes from all of those places. So, are you an apostle? What is God placing in your heart and in your mind? What are you called to do? Our response should be, here I am, send me. That's it. And then see what he does. He could do extraordinary things. Amen. Amen. Um, let's sing a song about transfiguration. Uh, let's sing a song and then we will pray for people. <laughs>